This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here, you know? And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's memory. I'm a kid. I didn't do anything, you know? And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And then once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, and today I'm particularly excited because we have two amazing people in the studio. First of all, the star of our show today, Matthew Charles. Um, his story is going to blow your mind. I'll leave it at that for the time being, but Matthew, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. And with him is uh, Kevin Ring, who has a remarkable story of his own. 
um, having been in prison himself and now being the leader of an organization that is very, very near and dear to me, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, on whose board I have served for 25 years. So, Kevin, welcome. Thank you. So, Matthew, it all starts with you because you've become sort of a, an amazing symbol of this mandatory sentencing nightmare that is a uniquely American problem. And, you know, and you're here now. It's funny, I'm the only one here not in a suit and tie, <laughs> you know, which is sort of ironic. But um, that being said, uh, you don't look like a guy who would have been sentenced to 35 years in prison. You look like a guy who would be more likely to be sentenced to 35 years sitting in a corporate boardroom. But that's beside <laughs> the point. So let's go back to Tennessee and back to when this, wh- where this story started. Uh, because you weren't wrongfully convicted, but you were wrongfully sentenced, and more than once. So let's go back to the time of the crime and how this all started. Uh, back in 1995, I was arrested on felony drug and firearm uh, violations. At the time, there was a war on drugs, so therefore 50 grams or more for crack cocaine allowed you to have a sentencing range of 10 years to life. And because of the amount exceeding 50 grams, it allowed me to be at 30 years to life. And when I was sentenced in 1996, I received a 35-year sentence. And we'll get to that saga, right? What what makes your story so newsworthy is the fact that you were in for so long, for decades, and then out and thriving on the outside for about two years and then put back in. I was incarcerated for 21 and a half years uh, before I was released the first time. I went back and did seven more months once I was sent back and the original 35-year sentence was reinstated. But throughout that process of time, the sentencing guidelines changed three particular times during that period of my incarceration in 1996, in 1998 and in 2010. In 1998 and 2000, it actually stated that the sentence that I was serving could not even be above 20 years. So therefore, everybody that got sentenced after 2000, which was Booker versus Washington, they received the sentence of 20 years for the same offense with the same criminal history and the same career offender uh, guidelines. The only thing changed was it took away the mandatory nature of the sentencing guidelines. The racial disparity didn't disappear. It didn't completely disappear. It got lowered, you know, uh, greatly in 2010. In 2010, Senator Durbin sponsored and championed the first mandatory sentencing rollback in America in 40 years. You know, that rollback, which I'm proud to say I worked, you know, what was involved in, while it didn't establish parity for crack and cocaine, it rolled it back from 100 to 1 disparity to 18 to 1. Um, Now, this is an inherently racist situation because Mm -hmm. we know that the overwhelming majority of crack arrests are people of color Mm -hmm. and the overwhelming majority of coke arrests are white people. So you don't need to be a social scientist to figure out what's going on there. And I'll say this about Senator Durbin because you mentioned him. He recently gave a speech, and you don't hear politicians do this, but he said his vote for the original 100 to 1 disparity, a lot of those guys voted for that at the time because it was the height of the drug war. He said it was the worst vote he ever cast and that he was sorry for it. And that, you know, since that time, he has worked hard to erase it. And 2010 was the first step in doing that. But I mean, it just takes a lot of courage to say, you know, we were caught in a moral panic, made a mistake. But as an elected official, I did the wrong thing. And now I'm making amends. Even when I went to meet him, he stated how he was instrumental in the 2010 changes as well as the ones that took place uh, that released me in 2019. How does, you know, people, I tell people about Matthew's case and they say, but isn't that double jeopardy? He was in, he was out, and he was put back in for the same crime. Matthew was sent back because the federal judge in his case 
thought that the 2010 law applied to him and should have benefited him, so he was able to cut his sentence. And it turns out the appeals court, so this was another funny thing about the way our politics work. It was the Obama Justice Department who appealed the judge's decision and said, no, he should finish serving his 35 years. And then the appeals court agreed, and then they sent it back to the judge. And now the Trump Justice Department was there, and the judge said, I really don't think I should be sending this guy back. Are you sure you don't want to drop these charges? Because he'd been out for two years and people saw him. And they said, no, send him back. So everybody's hands were on this. They could have left him out. It was a decision to send him back just because of this commitment to, you know, this this sort of like formalism of this rule of law, like, no, that's what the sentence is. And even though we see that he's been rehabilitated and he doesn't need the sentence, we're going to send him back anyway. The thing about it is uh, me just being incarcerated for that period of time and seeing the others that are incarcerated with the same amount of time or more uh, based on mandatory minimum sentences with no way of having any type of relief. I just hope that more change is forthcoming. Well, what percentage of the people that you are in with do you feel are really a a menace to society? I would say probably 25%. I would say 75% uh, have been over-sentenced and are not a menace to society. And I would say 50% of those people are changed. In February 1996, I had become a Christian. It doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. Uh, You have a right to justice for all. You have a right to be sentenced for the crime and get a punishment that suit for that crime, not to be over-sentenced. And the majority of people in there are for nonviolent offenses. And even some of those that have violent offenses still, they have changed over the years. That's what I was speaking about. Either a person changes because of their choice to change for themselves or their family, or they may have an encounter, a spiritual you know, awakening like I may have had, or the fact that they've just aged over the years and they've just taken a real look at their lives. It doesn't take much to awaken a person. But the sad part is that those people that have been awoken are still awakening to 30-year sentences, life sentences, and their nonviolent offenses. We know that in most parts, I would say, of Western Europe, the maximum sentence you can get for anything is 15 years. You know, and some people say, well, that's dangerous guy. I mean, okay, we can have that discussion, right? There, There may be exceptions, but... In general, the idea that in Western Europe you can murder multiple people and get sentenced to less than half the amount of time that Matthew did for, you know, it wasn't a small amount of crack, but it's still, we're talking about seven ounces, right? And can we put that in context? Seven ounces, it would be like five or six sweet and low packages, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, I don't know how much is in an actual, you know, <laughs> sugar package that you put in your coffee, but it's, yeah. you know, well, it would yeah. be not far off from that. So it's not like... You weren't Scarface, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> By no means. <laughs> and you don't appear to be a danger to society either. I mean, mm-hmm. from everything that, that I can tell from knowing you for the short time that I have. But I can't even imagine your perspective going from being one of 2.2 million people in this gulag system of America, anonymous, almost without hope. And then the next thing you know, here comes Kim Kardashian. Next thing you know, you're being discussed in the White House and you're being discussed in the halls of power and you're actually visiting these places and you're on the front page of newspapers and everybody's knowing the name of Matthew Charles. And the reason for that, of course, is that you were freed, you were out, anyone could see that you were doing great, right? You were contributing to society, you were contributing to your community and your family, and then what happened? During the time that I went back for those seven months, once my family and friends started telling me that Kim Kardashian West had first tweeted about asking the president to release me or do something about my situation, I was in awe. 
you know what I mean? And then actually, uh, once I was able to be released and thank her for speaking on my behalf and uh, having her hearts and her thoughts concerning me uh, throughout my plight, and I was able to go on her page and tweet that, and then when she tweeted back, God bless you, Matthew, I was like, wow. And the fact that uh, she's speaking out against uh, the mandatory minimum nature of the sentencing guidelines or the mass incarceration, extensive sentences, and calling for more criminal justice reform just is amazing because voices like hers and people like her are listened to. And I'm just thankful for it. Yep, and I am too. And, you know, as you know, she was on wrongful conviction. We did an episode with her and we talked about your case. And, you know, she really is a passionate advocate. And because I started in this work because of a mandatory sentencing case way back in 1993. And once I was found out I was able to make a difference and get this kid Stephen Lennon home, I was hooked and I'll never stop. I mean, as long as I got breath to breathe, I'll keep fighting the good fight. And I feel like it's the same thing with her now that she's had the experience of working with you and uh, Alice Johnson and she's in it now. And, you know, having her voice is is just a great, great thing for the movement. So, And it takes voices like hers. And I'm asking now, what can we do for the ones that are still incarcerated? And that is, it's a common thread. We've recorded about 80 episodes of this podcast so far, and I, I would say almost every one has got the same goal that you do, which is to help the others that were left behind. Yes, I don't know any to come out and go, okay, I'm going to go get what's mine now. No, everybody comes out with this passion that is so inspiring, and that puts so much gratitude in my attitude because everybody wants to go and help others, and that's the way it should be. And because the show is called Wrongful Conviction, I wanted to ask you about that too before we turn back to Kevin. What percentage of the people, because there were hundreds, if not thousands of people you encountered in 21 and a half years in prison, what percentage of them do you think were actually innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted? Since my incarceration in the federal system, I would say because the federal system uses a thing called conspiracy. And in a conspiracy, it doesn't take any real actual evidence. They can just convict you on somebody's testimony or what we call in the federal prison system as ghost dope. In other words, they can give you an amount, even though they don't actually have that amount. Just like even in my case, I bear 216 grams, but the actual drug amount that was attributed to me that could factually be proven was 56 grams. Everything else came from hearsay testimony that I wasn't able to refute because the government was able to get it in under the conspiracy rule. So in saying that, I would say out of the people that are incarcerated for drug offenses, uh, I would say probably 60 to 70 percent of them have been charged with conspiracy are ghost dope. And the sad part is a lot of times in the federal system, they're forced to take a plea. So in other words, the prosecution states to where it doesn't matter, I'm going to give you this amount of time. And normally because the court is bound by, at the time I was sentenced, the mandatory minimum, and this is the sentence that has to be imposed. And then the judge just actually has the discretion to give you the low end, the mid of that sentence or the high end. But it's normally already so high, they just give you the low end anyway. You know what I mean? I'm not laughing at this fact that they do that because it's sad and disappointing. And so, in other words, a lot of times that is held over the inmates or the prisoners' head to where they have to agree to a police sentence, then come into prison and know 
that all the evidence that they gave against you was fabricated. So a lot of times they got it wrong. You know, we have this, I think it's an initiative that was driven by the Innocence Project called the hashtag guilty plea problem. Um, Because in America, we know that 96% of felony convictions are guilty pleas. And it's exactly, Mm -hmm. I mean, you said it very eloquently. That's exactly why it happens. Because for a lot of people, it's the only rational decision you can make. Brian Banks, a great example of that in California, right? Pleaded guilty to a rape that not only didn't commit it, it never happened. But he was advised by his attorney, like, we're going to lose. You know, and mm-hmm. you're going to get 25 to life. And so he chose, you know, the only rational choice. And fortunately, eventually, it was proven that, that he was as innocent as could be. But it was too late to save him from the sentence that he got. I just want to mention something you said about these guilty plea problems. I'm so glad the Innocence Project is doing that. I've seen a lot of their work on it, and it's excellent. As you know, every year when they release the number of exonerees, there's always a percentage who pled guilty. People deny that that happens. Prosecutors will say, no one innocent pleads guilty. It happens every year. We see it now because of... Every day. Yeah, and we know it because they get exonerated by DNA evidence, and then you look back at those cases and you say they pled. And it's always the same. Why did you do it? It was a better deal. And I was testifying in Pennsylvania Senate, and a great criminologist, Mark Kleiman, said to a hostile senator, if the prosecutor said to a person, plead guilty and testify as we want, or we're going to break your arm... No one would have any problem seeing the moral problem with that threat. And yet breaking your arm would be a luxury compared to spending 35 years in prison. So when you have a system that sort of incentivizes people to say whatever, do whatever, admit to crimes they didn't commit, testify against people when they didn't see something, you're going to get injustices. And so... Right, I would even take it one step further. You could yeah. say to people, um, plead guilty and we'll give you a choice. Either break your arm or spend 15, 20, 35 years in prison. I'd be investing in the company that makes the casts, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Stock in that company because everybody would take that choice. And right? I've never heard a good comeback for that. That's exactly what that choice feels like is, you know, do this or we have all the leverage in the world, and especially with mandatory sentences. Because, right, if you say, I want to go to trial, I think I'm innocent or I'm just bullheaded, and at least the judge would have some discretion in a normal case. But with a mandatory minimum, if the prosecutor brings it and threatens you with that, the judge is cut out. Now you get to the end of the sentence, you've been convicted, and the judge may say, I don't want to give you that punishment, but I have no choice now. These mandatory sentencing laws are so out of step with the rest of the world, the rest of the Western world, but almost anywhere in the world, you can't get these kind of sentences for for drug crimes. No, that's right. It's only America who did this. We had this crime rise and we responded with these mandatory sentences. No other country did that. And so our incarceration rate, you know, grew 600 percent. I always tell people the same thing, that from 1990 to 2005, we built a prisoner jail in this country every 10 days. And that's solely to keep up with how many people we're throwing into the prisons because of these mandatory sentencing laws. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. The fact that we incarcerate black males in America at six times the rate of South Africa at the height of apartheid is something that I can actually feel people shaking their heads when they hear this, right? And this, which is crazy because we're not even live. So I'm projecting. But <laughs> the, you know, the idea that a black man in America without a high school diploma has a something like a 60-something yeah. percent chance of spending a year in prison before his 30th birthday. What? Like... I mean, people don't talk about this, but the real reason that Ferguson erupted, I think most people and most social scientists would agree, was not because specifically of Michael Brown, but it was because they were arresting people in Ferguson for mowing their lawn the wrong way, you know, for walking down the street without ID. I, I heard that in Ferguson, the average household had something like four outstanding warrants, right? Because they were just arresting people for just being black, basically, right? And of course, there's the socioeconomic aspect of this, which is just basically pulling money in so many sort of nefarious ways from the poor community and putting it in the hands of certain corporations who are, you know, profiting from this mass incarceration. And, you know, I hope that listeners will check their portfolios and divest from companies. If you have a pension fund or anything else that you're involved with and you find out that they own stock in private prisons, divest. We have to make it known that we're not going to be involved in profiting off of caging other human beings. It's not okay. A lot of people do it, don't know they're doing it, so it's, so it's worth taking a look. Well, let me give you an example of something that just happened this week, and I don't mean to be so self-absorbed about this. My 16-year-old daughter wanted to have a debit card so she could go out with her friends and not have to always carry cash, so we opened an account for her, and she's been using it for a couple weeks, and then we just got a notice that her account was overdrawn, which it wasn't. They said, we're closing it out and sending you the check. And right away I knew what that was because I had to co-sign for that account. So I called Capital One, and I said, what's going on here? And they said, we're going to send you a closeout check, and we'll inform you what this is about. And all they did was send the closeout check saying this account was closed at the customer's request. No, it wasn't. We didn't ask to close it. And so I had to bump around on a million phone calls and finally say, I have a felony conviction. Is that why you closed her account? And they finally said, yes, the bank has made a business decision not to have an account with you. So I went to prison for a year and a half, as you know, for public corruption charges. 
my daughter can't have an account at Capital One Bank. So this is a cultural problem. You wouldn't need to do this podcast if everyone saw it the way you saw it and we see it, right? So part of our problem is we're trying to convince our fellow citizens that this is the problem and, and look at its tentacles. I mean, why can't a 16-year-old girl have a bank account because her dad went to prison for a year and a half for, you know, these charges? And that's the way it is. And, I, and I'm fine, right? I have, I have a credit union account. I, we'll be fine. I'm, I'm more fortunate than most. What if you're a single mother and, you know, you, your husband had a conviction and now you can't have an account for your kids? And that bank account's the only chance. So we just penalize people in so many ways, prison being the worst of it. But you just never get out of the penalty box. You don't get occupational licenses to do, you know, people who are barbers in prison, then they can't do it on the outside. We just never let people out and we punish them. And that's, I'd love to point to somebody and say it's their fault, but we countenance this unless we go to say to the politicians, we don't want these policies anymore. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it, it's nuts because all of us want to live in a safe society, right? All of us want our, ourselves and our families to be, you know, able to walk the streets and, it shouldn't be that difficult for people to understand that since 95 or more percent of people that are in prison right now are going to be coming home, the only approach that makes any sense is to give those people the best chance possible to get back on their feet when they get out. Instead, we pull the rug out from under them. Then, then we act surprised when they have to resort to stealing something or doing something else because they need to eat. It's amazing, you know, in other countries, they have a recidivism rate that's a tiny fraction of ours because they treat their prisoners like human beings and they pave the way for them to come out and get back into society where we just put up barriers one after the other. I love my country. I was born here. I know how lucky I am to have been born here in the first place. And it's because I love my country that I want to see these things changed. You know, it's a very interesting moment because this is at least to some extent, the only bipartisan issue right now, right? There's such a divide in this country. But on this issue, there's some alignment. Is it because of the fiscal problems? that? Come? Yeah, I think it's more personal than that. I think that people use arguments that they can justify to their own side. So you hear conservatives talking about the cost of prisons and, and these things. But ultimately, I think it's a moral issue for everybody. It is a matter of fairness. The system didn't hit every community in the same way. So certain communities were sensitized to this issue earlier on. But now we have this new study from Forward.us that said one out of every two adults in America has had an immediate family incarcerated. So that's over 113 million Americans. I mean, obviously, I'm self-interested. FAM's been fighting this for over 25 years, thanks to your help. What we're trying to do is take that number, right? If you were a lobbyist and you were trying to influence a member of Congress, you'd say, hey, do I have any plants in his district? Do I have any constituents? We have constituents everywhere across this country. 113 million people have been affected by this system. What we're trying to do is make them advocates, make them part of a loud, noisy army that says, we can't do this anymore. A bad system will breed bad results. And we have a bad system that incentivizes the wrong things. And so what we're trying to do is get people involved. Our particular interest is bringing forward the families who've been affected by this. And I think about my situation, you know, the fact that I wasn't somebody who thought he was going to end up in federal prison. But when it happened to me and all of a sudden, you know, the next day I'm taking my kids to the bus stop and one at a time neighbors are coming up to me over the next week saying, I've never told anyone this, but my brother went to prison. Somebody else come up, hey, I never told anyone my dad went to prison. And I thought, we're not talking about this. 
it gets to the point where I think it's Abraham Lincoln who said, if you want to repeal a bad law, enforce it strictly. We've got a point now where we're locking everybody up. And so now every community is saying, maybe we're doing this wrong. It's almost self-interest that's got us there. Every family has been touched either directly or indirectly by mass incarceration. You know, and in this country, the statistics are so insane. Like the one you just talked about. Like, I'm sitting here listening to it. I knew that number, but it still doesn't make any sense. Right? 113 million people. What is it? It's not a rite of passage. It's nothing to be proud of. It's disgusting. What are we doing? All we're doing is like trying to hurt our own people. And unless you believe that American people are inherently evil and need to be punished differently and more than other people around the world, then the only other conclusion you can draw is that we're doing it wrong. I, I believe that mass incarceration, this may be a controversial statement, is the worst social policy disaster since slavery. I used the same analogy, and I said that's not politically correct, because uh, I was talking to some inmates and well, some prisoners, <laughs> and I was like, well, really, whenever in 2010, sentencing guidelines changed, and they said that this was based on the racial disparity, crack cocaine to powder cocaine. The majority of the people that got incarcerated were African-Americans. Then when it was changed from 18 to 1, but those changes were not made retroactive, I did kind of make the analogy of slavery because I was like, well, you know that slavery was wrong and that it shouldn't exist. So therefore, you let the slaves go free. In this situation, you're saying, OK, we acknowledge that it's wrong and we're going to stop slavery, but we're going to keep the people slaves that's already in there. And that's the way I look at retroactivity. Not only did they turn around and change the sentencing guidelines themselves, the drug tables. So therefore, it was a clear admission that this was wrong. It was dis disproportionate to the black community. But yet you still had over 3,000 people, me included, that were still incarcerated because it was never made retroactive. Uh, so the First Step Act did make those changes retroactive. And if I hadn't got out for those two years and they was actually able to see me in society showing that I had been rehabilitated by society's terms. They didn't ever even knew it, and I still would have served nine or ten more years in federal prison, whereas I got some fellow brothers that I consider my brothers because they're incarcerated. It doesn't matter what their race is. Uh, a lot of time people say, well, you didn't receive an infraction or a disciplinary report in 21 and a half years. Well, okay, that's fine and dandy. I'm still a work in progress, but these people shouldn't have a long sentence just because they commit a minor infraction or they do something wrong in prison for a sentence that they shouldn't have had anywhere. I don't want to say that their behavior shouldn't be taken into accountability, but any time that you say, okay, Charles is in a different category than the rest of the prisoners that are in prison, federal prison, you're sadly mistaken. Some of my best examples, some of my best mentors had life sentences. And to me, they were living a better example of how to be somebody that has changed than I ever could. And it doesn't matter that I became a Christian at that time and they may not believe anything. But once you start looking at it from the perspective that he's a Christian, he didn't get in any trouble. And therefore, the wrong that was done to him needed to be righted. Well, the wrong is done to anybody need to be righted. Right. And it's interesting because talking to Matthew and, you know, he's a man of faith and everything else. I'm a Jewish atheist. Right. So but at the end of the day, I think we all believe in the same thing, which is redemption. Right. And America is supposed to be a nation of second chances. And yet we're actually the opposite. We are a lock them up and throw away the key nation. The amount of human potential that's being wasted, the people that could be contributing to society, tax dollars, you know, is the most mundane example. But, you know, culture and everything else, it's a tragedy.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know, in the limited amount of time we have left, I want to talk about Families Against Mandatory Minimums. It's some of the victories that the organization has won over the last couple of years um, are really phenomenal. FAMM.org, by the way, F like FLAM, right? F-A-M-M, <laughs> like music, music. FAMM.org. I encourage everyone to go to the website, sign up, learn more, get involved. But can you talk about some of the work and some of the priorities of Families Against Mandatory Minimums right now? Yeah, sure. Well, a lot of the things that we've been working on at the federal level were included in this First Step Act. And, you know, we're the first ones to say it was First Step Act for a reason. It only made incremental reforms, but the retroactive change of the crack law has been a priority since they passed it in 2010. We thought at the time, that was a difficult decision, probably for you too, that we thought, this isn't retroactive. All these guys whose stories we told now aren't going to benefit from this law. It made no sense. So it's so glad to see that finally happen. And what we're seeing is people getting out like Matthew, who weren't serving 12 or 15-year sentences and getting a couple-year breaks. There's lifers who are getting out. There are people with sentences like 35 years, like Matthews, who are getting out. So it's been, that's been incredible. Changes to the compassionate release rules. We talk about a sickness in our culture. We have this just bloodlust to make people die alone in prison cells. Even when they didn't get a life sentence, if they fall ill while they're in prison, they just can't get out because no one, you know, their family can't get through the bureaucracy to get out of prison. And so there was a change in this law that allows families and prisoners to appeal denials by the Bureau of Prisons, or if they don't get an answer in a timely way and they're terminally ill, they can go straight to court. So we're starting to see that work out. 
Another big change that we were happy to support was in Florida. There was a ballot amendment. Um, the big one was obviously Amendment 4, which gave felons the right to vote in Florida. And so that was hugely important, and we supported that. But we had another ballot measure because Florida had you know, its third highest incarceration rate in the country and had this quirk in its constitution that said even if the legislature wanted to make its sentencing reductions retroactive, it didn't have the power to do it. So we had to change the constitution. So we were able to get that on the ballot, and I think partly because of the wake of Amendment 4, it passed with 52% of the vote. So now in Florida, we're working on sentencing reforms that will be retroactive so we can get some of the cases that you've been helpful on, Jason, to get some of those people out. Because, again, we told stories about people who were getting unfair sentences, and then we changed the law, but it didn't benefit them. So now we're working on that. I think the next big thing we have to look at is these long sentences. Um, if you talk about violent offenders or if you get to the specifics of the offense, people get nervous. But if you say, how about after 15 years of serving a sentence, no matter what the crime, the judge gets to take a second look at you and see whether you've been rehabilitated, whether you've just grown out of the crime, or whether they've just on second thought, maybe the punishment was too severe. So we're talking about pushing forward what would be known as sort of a second look provision to get at some of these longer sentences, because that's really what's driving our incarceration rate. And we hope that people realize the more they see people like Matthew get out, that if you even if you don't make an internal change, as he said, people grow out of crime. I served time with a guy who got 10 years for a drug sentence. And I said, oh, you probably only needed two years. And he said, no, I needed five. I was a punk. I was a bad guy. And I needed to get away from my community, away from my family, which brought him into the drug selling. He said, I needed some time. He needed to grow out of it. Anybody who was in that prison would have looked at him, though, after those five years and said, you can go home now. But we don't have a system that allows for it. There's no parole in the federal system. So we have to have some way for judges to look back at these sentences and get people out. So FAM is committed to continuing our work at the state level to make sure we get rid of mandatory sentences, which are the most absurd in Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. Um, Louisiana, we're making great strides. Louisiana's been incredible. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of groups doing this, a lot of movement. Our particular interest is bringing forward the families who've been affected by this. Sometimes there's a problem where, you know, members of the public or the media or lawmakers will see somebody, even a guy like Matthew, although I haven't seen it happen with Matthew, and they'll say, well, you did something wrong. And so they're somehow, they're able to not feel sympathy. But when you have family members come forward and say, you know, my dad made a mistake or my brother made a mistake, and they deserve to be held accountable, but you don't know what this sentence and this punishment is doing to all the rest of us. We're innocent collateral damage. That is very effective. And so when we bring those family voices, when Matthew was away, his friend Naomi came to our rally last July. She spoke with Tennessee senators. She was his advocate. That really does make a difference. And it's seeing people in the flesh. We are good at punishing others that we don't know. But when you see people, and I always say this, and you're an artistic person, so you'll get this. If somebody said to me, what did it for Matthew? It wasn't just that Julietta Martinelli at NPR in Nashville wrote a great story. It's that she took pictures. And when you saw Matthew working at a pantry and just saw him living his life you just knew this guy was not a threat who needed another decade in prison. You were embarrassed that we sent him away for 35 years. It's like when you first were talking earlier. It's like, this guy was in there for 35 years? That makes no sense. And so we've got to bring some sunlight to the system. And so that's, that, you know, by bringing the families 
forward and meeting with lawmakers and putting them in their face and telling those stories. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, not only am I not scared of Matthew, I'm thinking I need to get a hold of his tailor because I mean, oh. <laughs> he's up in here looking like a model. I mean, it's like every week it's on. another suit. This you know, guy, it's right? crazy. So, right. And again, that's FAMM.org, Families Against Mandatory Minimums.org. We're doing amazing work and we're really winning. We're yes. starting to really get on a roll. So now's a great time to join. You know, together we can turn this upside down and get back to a sane system and free up money for education and health care and all the other things that we really need instead of spending it all on locking people up, which has costs upon costs. I mean, it's amazing. In New York City, the state controller said it costs like $175,000 a year to keep somebody in Rikers Island. If you break that down to a daily rate, it's more than the Four Seasons on 57th Street. You know what I mean? Like, what? excuse me, like, you don't have to be an economist to understand that there's something really, really wrong with that. And I mean, no one should want to see their tax dollars being spent that way. And going back to what you have touched on before, you know, it wasn't 40 years ago that we had 300,000 people in prison in America. Now we have 2.2 million. And women in prison, I mean, we don't have time to go into that. But the fact is, we have 4.4% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prison population. That alone is mind-blowing. But we have 33% of the world's female prison population. Many of those women are mothers. And those children will most likely end up in the system themselves. Because we know from decades of research that the number one cause of why a child may end up incarcerated is if they've had a parent incarcerated. It's not education. It's not race. It's not socioeconomics. It's if someone is missing their parents and missing that family structure you know, they're going to fall into, you know, some of the same traps. And uh, it's, it's a cycle that we need to break, and the country will be much better off when we do. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I could talk to you guys for hours, but I'm assuming that people who listen probably have other things they want to do with their day as well. The good news is my favorite part of the show is this part of the show, um, and here's how it works. At the end of each episode, um, I get to take a rest and uh, give everybody a break from hearing my voice. And so what that means is that I'm going to thank both of you again for being here. Kevin Ring, the fearless leader of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and, of course, Matthew Charles, who has been a tremendous force for change in the the brief amount of time you've been out and who I know is going to go on to do great things. So thank you again for being here. And now I'd like to turn it over to you for final thoughts. And like I said, I get to turn my mic off and just listen. So, Kevin, how about you go first? I'll go first. I'm going to be brief uh, because I want Matthew to have more time and attention because he deserves it. When I first heard about Matthew's case, I was surprised that more people weren't working on it. And we jumped in. And a lot of people ending with you and Kim Kardashian and then the White House, everybody getting involved. And it was Amazing. What strikes me so much about Matthew is uh, his humility and what a decent person he is and how ashamed I am that we had somebody like that in prison for as long as we did. And when I first met him and he agreed to come to D.C. and meet with lawmakers to thank him, we're always criticizing policymakers. We have to thank them when they do the right thing. And that was a really great visit when he came. And when we had a chance to talk, he said, what I want to do with my life is serve the poor and those single-parent households. That's what my life is going to be. And when he was out, he had worked in a pantry helping families. And that tells you all you need to know about him. And we had to say, 
could you not look for a job for six months and just help us be an advocate? So, you know, we hired Matthew to be a FAM fellow for the next six months, and we've already met with the Tennessee governor, the Florida governor. He's met with lawmakers. He's giving speeches. He was on panel yesterday. He's in high demand, and it's just illustrative of who he is. Even aside from those who want to give back on criminal justice reform, he just wants to be a positive member of his community, and we're grateful that he is using his voice to help us on this cause for now, and then he's going to be the pride of Nashville when he finishes up. I've worked with a lot of people in this area, a lot of people who you know do good things and have been rehabilitated, but what has struck me about Matthew's story is that he has stayed grounded. He's not looking to be a celebrity. He is just looking to use his voice and experience in the best possible way, and we're incredibly grateful for it. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, thank you, Jason, for having me today. Uh, I like to say I became known by default <laughs> due to the fact that my circumstances uh, caught media attention and therefore people were able to uh, hear my story. You hear the situation, you say, okay, this can't be possibly true. Then you find out that it is true. A man was released after serving 21 and a half years on a nonviolent drug offense. Uh, an offense which actually carries now less than 20 years. I was given a 35-year sentence for it. And had it not been for uh, Judge Kevin Sharp allowing me to go free in 2016, nobody would have even heard of me or my story or that I had changed. So I'm grateful for that all of those spokes in that rim were working at the time. But my situation is not isolated from other people's uh, situations that are still incarcerated that don't have anybody speaking on their behalf, that's actually asking how can I get some relief from a system that has caused me to feel bitter or oppressed only because of the sentence, not the crime I committed, but the sentence that I was imposed. I've seen them, I've listened to their stories, I worked in a law library where they would come up to me and ask me to read letters from home, whether it read from their kids or their wives or their siblings, because they didn't have that educational level. So because I worked as an educational tutor before, I worked in a law library. I was able to make friends with some people and help them to write letters back home to their families, to their children, as well as read their letters to them and what they was receiving from their attorneys. And someone was like, I took this plea because had I not took this plea, I would have been sentenced to this or that. And all of those stories sounded synonymous to the point that it became, it was the same. This person pleaded out to what they thought was less so that they wouldn't get a larger sentence, but yet they weren't even deserving of the sentence that they were given. It's just that it was a trap system where the trap doors are closed and there's no way out. If that happened to you or that happened to your child, you'll want somebody to speak out on their behalf or you will want some system to change. Well, that's all we want as well. They want to be able to get out and get back into society and regain their dignity. And so I'm thankful that I was able to be out for those two years. I'm thankful not that I went back those seven months, but during those seven months that it took on a whole new realm of people looking at my situation to where they were also able to present it to the senators and representatives saying, hey, a person can change. And we have an example of someone who has changed. They would have been able to say, oh, he certainly don't need to be there anymore. You got people with life sentences. You got people with 60 years all throughout the federal system, all throughout the state system that's just begging and praying and hoping for a second chance. Everyone is deserving of a second chance if they've changed. Well, you know, it's great that you're here being the spokesperson that you are. And uh, I'll close by just quoting uh, the great Brian Stevenson who said, I believe everyone's better than the worst thing they've ever done. Once again, this has been a unique and special episode of Wrongful Conviction. And thank you, Kevin Ring, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and Matthew Charles for joining us. All right, thank you. Thank you.
Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.